Y'all can be seated, and as you do, join me in prayer. Our Father, you are good, and you are delightful. We thank you for the many ways that you have blessed us. We thank you for your consistency, that you are reliable and trustworthy and faithful. You are indeed worthy of all praise and worship and honor, and we find joy in being able to give that to you. I pray this morning that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear that you would break our pride, our contentment, and our self-sufficiency and leave us amazed by Jesus. Make your word a swift word. May it pass from the ear to the heart and from the heart to the life and conversation. That as the rain returns not empty, so may not your word return empty but accomplish that which you want it to. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Well, a few years ago, uh, the Me Too movement took off, and this movement worked to highlight widespread uh, sexual abuse. And this quickly found its way into all facets of society. It showed up in politics, it showed up in sports, it showed up in schools, it showed up in Hollywood, and in music, and even in churches. In fact, our own convention has been roiled in some of these very problems. Now, has the Me Too movement had some excesses? Sure. But it has surfaced the fact that our world is more full of brokenness than we like to imagine. Friends, we do not live in Mayberry. We need to be able to hold two things together at one time. First, we ought to be able to mourn the reality and do our best to to prevent abuse. But second, as Christians, we shouldn't be surprised by widespread brokenness. It's, It's true that you and I are worse sinners than we know. And the minute we think we've found just how broken we are, just how far our pride goes and how deep our selfishness is, we find that it goes deeper still. The moment you think you've gotten to the bottom, you haven't. And it's at this point that we bump shoulders with what Paul has for us this morning. While the Me Too movement took aim at the widespread reality of sexual abuse, Paul takes aim at the cosmic scale of human sin. And instead of focusing simply on the suffering of the sinned against, Paul takes aim at the self-righteous. Last week, we saw Paul come after pagan Gentiles who committed all kinds of sin. They were idolatrous. They lied about God. They practiced homosexuality. They were unrighteous. They were evil. They were greedy. They were arrogant. They murdered. They had strife. They had deceit. 
They boasted on and on and on. And throughout all of this, Paul seems to have his eyes fixed on some people who were cheering him on. Preach, came the yell from one corner in the back. Tell it like it is, said somebody from the other corner. Amen, said somebody in the middle. And by the time we get to chapter 2, Paul lifts his eyes and focuses on this group. You too, he says. Now, it's not that this group shouldn't have known that this was coming. If they'd been honest, this group of self-righteous, kind of smug people would have seen that when they got excited about Paul condemning pride and boasting and envy in their enemies, that they too had that in them. But in their raving and rejoicing at seeing Paul take down their enemies, they assumed that that must mean they were in the right. And they weren't. Friends, let me encourage you. Beware. We who've spent much time in the church can become really skilled at magnifying the sin of the world and minimizing the sin of the religious. And Paul will have none of that. And so Paul, much like Amos, many centuries before him, sets kind of a a trap. Amos was a prophet, and he came to God's people to Israel, and he had a tough message for them. But he delivered this message in an unusual way. He showed up in the town square, and he began to proclaim God's judgment on their enemies. He called out Moab, and he called out Edom. And he would say things like, for three transgressions of Moab, and for four, God will not turn it back. Well, this peaked the ears of his listeners, and they started coming out to hear what else he would say. And he moved around from all of their enemies to their enemies to their enemies, and as everybody came out, he sprung the trap, and he looked at them, and he said, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four, God will not turn it back. And for the next seven chapters in Amos, he laid his people low. Well, Paul does a similar thing here. Paul looks at the smug religious among his hearers, and he sets them up. He brings out all the sins of the pagan Gentiles, gets them riled up, then looks them in the face, and in Romans chapter 2, verse 1, he says, And you, O man, are without excuse. So go ahead and turn to Romans 2 if you're not there already. We're going to do the first 16 verses this morning. Romans 2, I'll start in verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, 
not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law by nature, do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. It's a difficult and heavy passage that we have before us this morning. And I want to show you three things in it that I want to draw your attention to. And the the first one is really verses 1 through 11. And Paul says something that we all know to be true, yet we tend to live as if it's not true. Paul says, God shows no favoritism. We saw last week in chapter 1 how in judgment God has removed his restraining grace from the Gentiles. He's given them over to the things that they want to do. It's as if he says, okay, you want that so badly, you can have it. And this was a way that God showed his judgment. And so then Paul turns to Israel and he asks a painful question. Do you think, he says, that you will escape the judgment of God? You see, we saw at the end of chapter 1 that the Gentiles not only practiced sin, but approved of practicing sin. And it seems that Israel thought, as long as we condemn sin, we can do what we want on the other side. And so Paul points out that they are doing the very thing that the Gentiles did, except they say it's bad. So Paul says... God does not show partiality. If he condemns the Gentiles for doing these things, he will also condemn you for doing these things. And here, if we're honest, I think this is where most of us will see ourselves in Romans. Last week as we were in Romans 1, you may not have seen yourself real clearly. So in Romans 1, uh, Paul says that these people denied God. But you're in church. You don't deny God. You come and you worship God. You give thanks to God. Paul condemned people who bowed down and worshipped creation. Well, you know the truth. 
You don't worship a created thing. You don't have idols set up in your house that you offer sacrifices to. You show up to church and offer your sacrifice, your worship, to the God who created all that is. In Romans 1, Paul condemned people who practiced homosexuality. And you don't practice homosexuality. You're married. And you have kids. But let me ask you this. As you look around, do you see sex scandals rocking churches? Do you see money laundering? Do you see a divisive spirit? Sometimes in really big ways where it splits churches in half, but more often in a way that's a little bit more subtle and instead of splitting churches just builds kind of hard and hurt hearts. Do you see jealousy or pride? Do you see people or yourself holding petty grudges? I suspect if we're honest, we do. And the question that Paul would then put to you and to me is this. Do you know who you look like? You look just like the pagan Gentiles. And don't miss this. If Paul levels this level of accusation at law-possessing Israel, what do you imagine he would level at us who don't possess the law but the Spirit? Do you find yourself thinking of yourself first, at least when there's credit to go around? Do you chew on anger and let it fester? Do you make excuses for your sin? I had a really hard childhood, or I had a hard day, or my morning was really hard, and I didn't really mean what I said. It just kind of bubbled out. If, If you really knew what I'd gone through, you wouldn't think it was so bad. We make excuses for our sin, but when we see someone else sin, is there no justification for it? Paul says God shows no favoritism. He will judge those who are outsiders for their sin, and he will judge those who are insiders for their sin. He will reward those who are outsiders and persist in doing good, and he will reward those who are insiders and persist in doing good. This, I think, raises an interesting question for us, though. If God in his grace and in his mercy entrusted his law to Israel, and if in the end Israel finds herself in the same pit as the Gentiles, then the question might surface, what is the point of the law? Why would God give the law? And that's the question that Paul takes up in verses 12 and 13. Now, there's a lot of reasons that we could say. This is the second thing I want you to notice, by the way. There's a lot of things we could say about why God has given the law. But the purpose that Paul highlights here in Romans 2 is that the law shows sin more clearly than we would see it otherwise. It it removes the cover-up, if you will. So at our house, we've been doing some renovations. We've been doing a bunch of work. 
And I'm not an expert carpenter by any means. And there's a saying that I've found to be true and helpful for us. It goes like this. A little caulk and a little paint makes a carpenter what he ain't. Maybe you've, <laughs> maybe you've heard it. Right? The idea is if you were really good at this trade, you would cut all of your joints tight. And when you put them together, it would look clean and nice. But if you're not an expert, they don't line up just right. And so you've got a couple options. You can leave it as it is and let everybody know, I don't actually know what I'm doing. Or you can put some caulk in it, you can paint over it, and nobody will know the difference. Well, Paul says the law is kind of like removing the paint and the caulk. Once you do that, what first looked good now is seen to be not. And so Paul says the law shows up to show us how broken we are. Because how would you know how far your sin goes if you didn't know what sin is? This shines a light on our lives so that we can see the sin. And in Paul's example, it goes even this far. Paul notes that Israel loved sin so much that even when given the law and told, do this and live, you know what they chose? Not to do this and die. We'll get to this more in Romans 3, where Paul says that the law brings knowledge of sin, but I hope you see yourself some in this. And so as we press in more deeply, Paul highlights a strange phenomenon. So Israel was entrusted with the law. They were told, do this and live. And Israel has now found herself in the same pit as the Gentiles. Sure, maybe they say these things are bad, but they find themselves doing these things nonetheless. And Paul notes that there's another group that's doing something strange here. There's a group of Gentiles, he says, who are outsiders, who weren't entrusted with the law, but who, for some reason, are found to be keeping it. Now, we see these uh, Gentiles at the, early on in, in, chapter, in verse 7 and in verse 10, but they really come more into the focus in verses 14 to 16. And this is the third thing that I want you to notice. Who are these strange, law-lacking, but law-keeping Gentiles? By the way, um, not super tied to this, but just kind of a broader tip for you as you read Romans. Paul writes in kind of like waves. And so what I mean by that is if you've been to the ocean, you'll notice that the waves come in and the waves come out. And as the tide changes, the waves come a little bit farther. And they go out a little bit farther. And one of the things you'll notice as you read through Romans is that Paul tends to talk this way. And so he'll pick one thing that's his main idea, and he'll go into that point, and he'll mention something else kind of along the side that catches your ear. And you might find yourself going, huh, wait, what's that? And just as you start to ask questions about it, Paul pulls the wave back and focuses back on his original thing. And then maybe a chapter or two chapters or three chapters, or four chapters later, he'll recircle back around to that thing and spell it out in more detail. 
that's what I think is going on here in Romans chapter 2 with these law-keeping Gentiles. He mentions it kind of in passing here, but then he's going to circle back around to it later in Revelation. So who are these people? Well, some people think that this group of people that Paul says have the law, the work of the law written on their hearts are actually just some uh, Gentiles who happen to be a little bit more morally upright than law-possessing Israel. So even though Israel should know what to do, they don't do it. Paul says there happens to be some Gentiles who don't even have the law, yet do a better job of keeping it than you guys. That should make you ashamed, and you ought to shape up. Um, this would be kind of an example of God's common grace that his law is known whether you have the law or not. But I think there's something else going on here. I think Paul is intentionally alluding to some Old Testament promises that find their fulfillment here. This idea of the law being written on your heart isn't a throwaway phrase. It's one that Paul picks up in other places when he talks about what happens when the Spirit shows up. It's one that I think he pulls from Jeremiah. So we should have the verses on the screen so you don't have to turn there if you don't want to and you want to stay in Romans 2. But in Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. After those days being after I've visited them, after I've brought discipline and punishment, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I will put my law within them. Sounds a lot like Romans 2, when Paul says that they are a law to themselves. And I will write it on their hearts. Sounds exactly like what Paul says in Romans 2. And the result of both of those things Jeremiah says is, I will be their God, and they will be my people. This is something that Ezekiel picks up as well. Again, we should have this on the screen for you. Um, but Ezekiel chapter 36, Ezekiel says this. If I can find it. All right. Verse 26, Ezekiel says, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It seems to me that these Gentiles in Romans 2 aren't pagan Gentiles, but are Christians. These are people who have received the Spirit into them. It, to jump ahead just a touch, in Romans 8, this is maybe the most well-known chapter in all of Romans, verse 4, Paul says that this has happened so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So who are these people in Romans 2 who have a law within them, who have the law written on their hearts, uh, who Paul seems to think in Romans uh, 2, verse 7, that they are having patience and well-doing and seeking glory and honor and immortality. These, I think, are Christian Gentiles. Those who've turned to Jesus, received the Spirit, and been given a 
new heart. Now, don't get this backwards. We need to say this. We need to give this warning so we're thinking clearly here. Paul is not saying that these people simply try hard, right? That's the route that Israel has been pursuing, and it hasn't worked. He's not saying that these people uh, who kept the law have done it as a means of receiving the Spirit. No, these are people who turn to Jesus, receive the Spirit, that God has turned their stony heart into a fleshy heart, that he's made their spirit new and reworked their desires and affections. In this way, he's created a people without the law, but who keep the righteous requirement of it. This, by the way, is you and me. And in all of this, Paul is working at provoking his people to repent. He says as much, I mentioned the waves thing earlier, by the time you get to Romans 9, he's going to circle fully back around to all of this. He does this, he says, to provoke his own people so that they would be able to open their eyes and see what God is doing and turn to Jesus. And this, Paul says, should lead you to repentance. That is, after all, in verse 4, what Paul says is the point of God's kindness. All of this is getting a touch ahead of ourselves. Because if you look down to verse 17, where we'll start next week, Paul isn't yet done with condemning his people. He's not yet done with the theme of Israel's failure. And so for now, the point is that all are imprisoned in sin. Yes, Those who do Gentile sins are imprisoned in sin. And, Paul says, Romans 2, those who pride themselves in knowing the things of God are also imprisoned under sin. All are in the dock. All suffer the same disease. And all have been offered the same antidote. Regardless of whether they are Jew or Gentile, faithful or faithless, law-possessing or lawless. All have found themselves in the dock, trapped in sin, in need of God's mercy. And so to close, let me say a few things to Christians that are here, and then let me say a couple things to those of you who aren't Christian and are here. So to the Christian, beware Beware of the temptation to look down on the world from your lofty perch. Most of us, I think, find it way too easy to get way too angry at darkness in the world. Jesus is the light, and apart from light, is it any surprise that darkness acts dark? It's not. This, in fact, was who you were before you have been saved. And so rather than responding in anger, we ought to respond with compassion and love, and we should pray big prayers. So beware of thinking of yourself too highly. Beware of self-righteousness. Beware of contentment in yourself. That's the first thing I want you to hear. The second thing that you should know, is you ought to rejoice, right? 
If you are in Christ, Paul's description of these strange Gentiles who aren't ethnically Jewish, who weren't entrusted with the things of the law, but somehow find themselves doing the righteous requirement of the law, this is you. Those who have the Spirit find their desires and wants reworked, and they find themselves less desiring selfish things and more desiring to please their God. These people who, Paul says, uh, weren't pursuing righteousness, in Christ they obtained it. And so, church, Christian, you have been given the Spirit, and so yours ought to be one of rejoicing. The last thing that I'll mention to you is obey. Sometimes as we read through Romans, we can place such an emphasis on the truth, the truth that we aren't saved by the things that we do, but that we're saved by Jesus, that we short-circuit the call, that those who've been called to Jesus and trust Jesus are called to obey Jesus. And so, Christian, beware of thinking of yourself too highly. Rejoice that God has given you His very Spirit and obey. For those of you who are here who aren't Christian or aren't sure if you're Christian, I want to tell you a couple things. First, you are not too far gone. But we've just looked at a laundry list of sins, both in the pagan world and in the Jewish world in Romans 1 and 2. There's nothing that we could add to this list that we see today that wasn't at work then. And if God was in the business of saving them... And if he's in the business of saving me, then I promise you, he can save you. And so you are not too far gone. That's the first thing I want you to hear. The second thing I want you to hear is God is not far from you. You see, some people tend to think of God as somebody who kind of created the world, set it spinning, and then went on a hike somewhere else and left things to their own devices. That's not God. God created the world, yes, and God has remained active and present in his creation. And so simply because you don't feel God, whatever that might mean, doesn't mean that God isn't near. You're not too far gone. God is not far away. And then one last thing to mention to you. We live in a world that's broken. Yes? The advice that many give to people who are broken and hurting is to be kinder to yourself. Let me offer you some countercultural advice. What you don't need is to be kinder to yourself. Let God's word have its way. So I've got some good news and some bad news for you. The bad news is you're worse than you think. This is why you don't need to be kinder to yourself. Because you're actually a worse person than you realize that you are. That's the bad news. And as we mentioned earlier, the minute you think you've gotten to the bottom of just how bad you are, just wait, and pretty soon you'll find out you are worse yet. But here's here's the good news. Jesus knows that in its full, far more than you do, 
and yet he loved you to the point of the cross. So don't be kinder to yourself. Let God's word have its work in you. You are broken and you need Jesus, but the good news is Jesus wants you. He will take you. So if you're in this room and you're not a Christian, I want you to know you are not too far gone. God is not far, and you're worse than you know, but loved more than you know. And so my encouragement to you, one of the things that we love about this church is it is full of people who love and know Jesus. And so if you're curious about all of this, the people around you would love nothing more than to talk about Jesus with you. And so after the service is over, even right now, uh, lean over and ask somebody. That's, that's my encouragement to you. Let me pray for us, and we'll be done. Um, we're going to sing one last song as we're reminded that Jesus calls sinners, for that's all that there are, to come to him, that he cleanses us, and that he saves us. So join me in prayer. Father, you are full of mercy and patience and grace. And we are grateful for that because apart from that, we would be lost. So we thank you that you've not given up, that you've not quit, that you've not abandoned your creation and your people, but that you have sent your very Son to take on flesh to live a sinless life, and to die for our sin. And so help our joy to be rooted and unshakable. Help it to ooze out of us when life hands us difficult times. Let us be light and salt to those around us, we pray. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen.